27th blockbuster episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that doesn't need to go down under to make a dollar. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Good evening, James. That was that was a classy introduction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, glad to be here with you this evening and uh, discussing some exciting magic cards ahead of uh, Pro Tour Eldritch Moon. Our show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, what is the schedule for everybody this week? Well, this week we have our typical four segments. Segment one is Top Movers. This is where we're going to discuss the cards that have seen the largest gains over the past week and discuss where they came from. Segment two is our Cards to Watch. This is where James and I outline some of the cards we have our eyes on as potential uh, ways to make money. Uh, segment three is our metagame week in review. We are going to be discussing Star City Baltimore pretty quickly, uh, the standard and modern lists. Um, but given that you are probably listening to this right around the time of the Pro Tour, uh, I don't know if it's going to be super relevant. And finally, segment four, topic of the week. We'll probably touch on two topics this week. Uh, the new FTV lore was announced, as well as the new Grand Prix schedule, which has some information hiding in there if you know where to look. Uh, so let's hop in at the top, segment one, top movers. James, why don't you get us started? So first on our list this week, we have Selfless Spirit Foils out of Eldritch Moon, um, a card that's been making inroads in the sta- the standard-based spirits deck, um, card going from $8 to $12 in foil. Um, continues to see moderate to high standard play, depending on which tournament we're talking about, and we'll be looking to see if spirits can post some good results this weekend. Uh, to keep the card high. Yeah, in my article last week, I recommended selling these at around $5, the non-foils, um, because it didn't seem like a 5 to $10 card. But uh, as we'll see later on, they were all over Star City Baltimore. So apparently this card is much more relevant than I had anticipated initially. So uh, this is shaping to be a pretty important card in standard. It's also interesting that uh, modern Spirits decks have been popping up um, and we'll be looking to see whether they can post up consistent results um, and take uh, a segment of the marketplace uh, over the next you know, 6 to 12 months. Spirits is a tribe that gets new cards all the time, so um, I suspect that if the tipping point for Spirits is not now, um, there will still be one somewhere down the road. Uh, our next card is Nether Void from Legends. Uh, it's a reserve list card. Nether Void started the week at about 300. It's now close to 475. Uh, that's about a 50 to 60% gain. I don't think this is indicative of anything too major. I'm guessing one copy got sold or um, relisted for a higher price or something to that effect, and we've seen the price move. So I don't think that this is anything particularly uh, important. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's just we're getting to the point with some of these um, big ticket uh, reserve list cards that there just aren't that many left on the market. Currently, there's two copies of Nether Void available on TCG, one posted at 340, the other at 475. So that shows the uncertainty of the the price point. The market price is only reading at 225. So, um, you know, it's good to come at these with a healthy skepticism um, and, you know, look at look at picking them up only when you can get a really good deal versus the, the posted prices. Um, you know, pe- people are going to be looking to unload if they got in lower and, and aren't playing with the cards. So, um, you know, just be cognizant of what's really going on. So moving on, we have Leyline of the Void Foils from Guild Pact, uh, moving from $80 to $175. Um, this is a card that's a popular sideboard card in both Modern and Legacy, shows up in decks of all sorts of different varieties. Um, it's played in Eldrazi Stompy decks and Legacy, and also four-color Loam decks, Omnitel. Um, in Modern, you see it in Living End and Junk, Sideboards, and really can be show up in a sideboard anytime the metagame shifts heavily to, uh, in favor of the graveyard-dependent graveyard decks. So, you know, t- not tremendously surprising to see that these foils ha- have taken uh, a large step forward. 
Um, but again, watch the market price to see what people are actually paying for them. Yeah, this card uh, was very cheap. Um, maybe not the guild pack version, but the uh, M11 versions were really cheap in foil a little while ago. But they've since climbed. They're now easily pushing $30, and there's not more than two playsets left on TCG Player. So I think we're going to see non-foils and foils of this card continue to tick up until we get another reprint. Uh, it's just a matter of time on that one. But until we do, I think prices on this card above the board will slowly increase, especially with the renewed interest in Dredge and Modern. I, actually, I just realized, I, I told people to look at the, the market price and then realized um, foil market prices don't show up on TCG yet, uh, which actually makes tracking um, the plateaus for foils uh, a little tougher. Um, so instead of looking for the market price that doesn't exist, um, take a look at uh, you know sold listings on eBay or pay attention to what's going in various going on in various forums and, and Facebook groups to get the measure uh, of what people are actually willing to pay for these cards. Completed eBay listings are where I get my information from very frequently, especially for cards that aren't just stock standard non-foil English stuff. Uh, completed eBay, eBay sales are, are a great tool for, for figuring stuff like that out. Um, yeah, so next on our list is Mishra's Bauble uh, from Cold Snap. I feel like we talked about this recently. It is current started the week at 19 and is now 45 for about 135% gain. Uh, this is coming from the Death's Shadow Zoo deck in Modern um, that just chugs through cards in its graveyard and blows away its life total in order to kill with uh, Teamer Battle Rage and become immense. Um, it's also showing up in the new Dredge, some of the Dredge decks out there right now. It's an interesting Delirium enabler in Modern. It's an easy way to get an artifact into your graveyard. So uh, the card just has a lot of utility, uh, crazy, kind of a crazy price at this point, but honestly, 45 is high, but it doesn't sound unsustainable to me. Uh, Cold Snap is also, or I'm not Cold Snap, Counterbalance is also from Cold Snap. It's a $25 uncommon, and I would say right now, Counterbalance probably has close to, possibly even less demand than Mishra's Bobble. So uh, a price of $30 on Bobble is not necessarily unsustainable without a reprint. Yeah, I mean, the race at the bottom has already started on TCG Player. The market price is only showing eighteen fifty. Um, so, I, and there's a price as low as thirty six currently posted. I suspect that this comes down somewhere, like you said, around thirty. Could get as low again as twenty five. It's going to hold a higher plateau, but these uh, the demand is mostly coming from decks like Death's Shadow, and some of the Grixis decks have also experimented with this. There's some green black experimentation going on in Modern, um, trying to leverage Delirium. And, you know, none of those decks have really been breakout decks that have made a, a big appearance at a top table um, on camera. So I'm, I was happy to push Mishra's Bottle out the door today at 35 on Puka Trade, um, you know, for <laughs> a couple cards that were just sitting in a binder somewhere, um, picking up 70, 60 or $70 worth of value. You shouldn't even blink twice. Um, it's not a card that's suddenly going to spike to $100 uh, anytime soon. It's relatively easy to reprint. I, I, I think somewhere down the road, we get some kind of Urza's Mishra's set. They're going to get, eventually marketing's going to get tired um, of the Gatewatch Planeswalkers and need to take a sidestep. And uh, revisiting some of the classic characters is probably in the works sometime in the next few years. Well, you know, I don't doubt that they will reprint it. They absolutely will. Um, and I also think if you were able to get out at 35 cash or Puka points, that's basically fine. That's very solid as well. I, I'm just kind of thinking that, you know, this is like the third or fourth time this card has spiked. There are no more uh, free copies out there. You know, they were all dug out of bulk boxes and collections the first time this happened and the second time this happened. So, you know, there, there's not that density of copies to absorb some of the blow from this. You're right, it's not a $100 card, but uh, I, I saw some people griping on Twitter a little bit that it's silly that a common is this expensive, but I mean, there's decks that need it. There's almost no copies and there's no liquidity left in this market. So uh, it's, it's probably more real than not, at least until we see another copy. So next on our list, we have Crush of Tentacles out of uh, Oath of the Gatewatch. Uh, moving from $1.50 to $4.50, probably the most interesting standard card to come out of the Star City Games Baltimore tournament last weekend. There's a Crush of Tentacles deck that we're going to talk about in a little bit um, that did well at the tournament, making top eight, and uh, put a whole new deck archetype on the map for standard. 
Um, so not surprising to see this mythic rare that was played as a four of in that deck uh, move up a bit. It's it, If the deck continues to do well and shows up at the Pro Tour, um, expect this card to see a spike somewhere over $10 if it, if it makes it deep uh, into day two in the hands of multiple pros. I snuck in on uh, a couple of playsets of copies around the dollar mark. I haven't pulled the trigger on getting rid of this yet just because I want to see how the Pro Tour shakes out. I did really like how it was positioned against Bant Company. Uh, we watched it beat Bant Company, uh, I think, at least two times. Going over the top was really good. And if Bant Company is looking as obscene as it is in standard, I want to be uh, to be in the deck that, that could beat it. So, you know, there might be a Pro Tour breakout deck that that kind of brings us along does really well so uh it's a really powerful card i remember people were kind of talking about it when it first was spoiled it's just we needed some time to get for the pieces to get there so um i mean after this weekend i will probably be selling my copies no matter what uh just waiting to see what happens uh, next up on our list is conflagrate this is from time spiral this is a very odd card uh, let me let me read it to you here so we're all on the same page. Conflagrate is the red uncommon. It's RXX that deals X damage divided as you choose between tar creatures and players. So it's really expensive to play this on the front half. Uh, you know, like seven mana gets you three damage divided as you want. However, it's got a flashback of double red and discard X cards. Um, and that's the technique here is you pitch conflagrate for like one red uh, on turn one into your graveyard or you discard it with whatever else, um, blood craze ne or insolent neonate or what have you in the dredge deck. And then on turn two, you pay double red and discard your entire hand and you get to do a bunch of damage to whatever creatures your opponents had put into play so far. Uh, apparently it's very good in the dredge deck from what I'm hearing. Uh, how good is the dredge deck? I'm not sure, but it did just win... Um, the modern classic at Baltimore this past weekend. So it definitely has some play to it. Conflagrates up to three and a quarter uh, on this on these results. You know, two cards ago, we were talking about Mishra's Baubles, a 20 to $30 common from Cold Snap. This is currently a $3 uncommon from Time Spiral. This could be $10 if the deck is real. Uh, you know, maybe you sell it. Maybe you hold on to it. I'm not sure. Uh, what do you think? Do you want to hold your copies here or not? I'm happy to get out of this card. I I have trouble believing that uh, in any fringe modern deck that hasn't put up you know more than a couple of results. Um, a lot of these decks come and go, and the spikes have repeated have repeatedly been something that you should sell into. Um, just a quick note: Bobble is a, a common, an uncommon, not a common uh, in Cold Snap. That's not unfair. Uh, so last on our list, and it's supposedly the biggest gainer, um, with a huge caveat, uh, Lure of Prey from Mirage. This is kind of a, a pseudo-natural selection. Um, basically, uh, it reads that for two and two green at instant speed, you can play a green creature out of your hand if the opponent has played a creature this turn. Um, a card that very few people uh, have made use of over the years. Um, it's on the reserved list. It's in Mirage. It moved from, in theory, from $0.75 cents to $7 for an 800% plus gain. But if you look at the actual market price, um, you know it's still holding right near where it started. So somebody has bought these out. They're trying to make a move on it. We'll see if anything happens. Um, you know, you, if... Puka Trade uh, catches up on on the point value um, anywhere over $5. Feel free to send your copies out. I pulled five copies out of the Super Collection bulk this afternoon, and I will eagerly await the moment where somebody wants to purchase them from me. Um, otherwise, don't get too excited. Yeah, uh, Jason Alt was talking about this on Twitter yesterday, I think, or, or the day before today, sometime in the recent future, about how it's not even played that much in Commander. Um, this was, you know, until Hall of Gemstones it was kind of in the same boat, which spiked in the same way and then went cratered pretty hard. So I think that's exactly where we are with Lure of Prey. So moving on to our second segment this week, Cards to Watch. Uh, I'll kick things off. Uh, I'm actually going to flip the switch a little bit uh, this week and talk about some magic online opportunities, um, something we don't do too often. Um, uh, I managed a couple portfolios on manage. Uh, of ticks on Magic Online, uh, totaling about six or seven thousand US, and um, one of the things that's been relatively successful for me over the last couple of years has been picking up 
um, mythic foils um, of sets on Magic Online at their lows and waiting six to 12 months for them to basically get past the point where they're being drafted and into the period where um, people are still trying to redeem the set, but the, the draft supply has dried up. Um, typically what you see is a lot of the mythics will be available somewhere under 10 tickets. And if you buy kind of the full basket of, of the foil mythics, um, and wait for long enough, you often get an opportunity to unload most of them in the, say, 12 to $18 range, with the potential for some of them to spike over 20 or 30 tickets. Um, oddly enough, it's not always the best cards that spike the hardest. Um, some of this seems to be to do with uneven distribution on Magic Online. Um, so specifically in this case, I'm looking at the Mythic Foils from uh, two sets this year, Shadows Over Innistrad and more so Eldritch Moon. Um, if you look at the foil prices for Mythics from Shadows Over Innistrad, only two of them are currently over $10. We have Nahiri the Harbinger, um, obviously a high demand card um, at 15 tickets, that's 15 and a half tickets sell price. And uh, foil Archangel Avacyn at 25 and a half. Almost everything else on the Mythic list is under $10, uh, with many of the cards being in the $6 to $7 range. Um, there's a very good chance that those foils are going to climb over $10 and provide a, a solid 20 to 30% gain, um, uh, a good place to park ticks, and also a good way to gain access to some powerful standard Mythics if you need to use them in decks. Um, you, know, you can park them for 6 to 12 months, use them in a deck, and then sell them after the fact. Um, one of the Eldritch Moon I like even more than Shadows Over Innistrad because it's going to be drafted less overall um, than Shadows, and it is mostly drafted in the summertime, where I suspect Magic Online activity is at a annual low. Um, and we're heading into Kaladesh pretty quickly here in the fall, at which point uh, most people will be focused on that draft format. Um, so I think that the the Mythics from Mythic rare foils from Eldritch Moon are an especially good place to be paying attention. Um, currently we have Gisela the Broken Blade at 12.50 and Liliana the Last Hope at 34 ticks. Um, I, I don't like Liliana at that price. I was picking up Gisela the other day, uh, singling her out when she was at 10.49 and I'm already up $2 a copy, which is a pretty sweet place to be um, this soon. Um, a lot of the other mythics on that list that are in the five to eight dollar range um, look very tasty as uh, components of a basket that you can sit on for uh, a while. Um, one last point is that starting with shadows, I believe um, the online pre-releases were handled differently, and the mythic foils are distributed quite a bit during the first couple weeks of release. This certainly will have an impact on the overall supply and may create drag. Um, on the, the prices of the foils. For instance, the Shadow over Innistrad foils haven't moved much. Um, I'm not concerned about that at this point, but I would be if we got around to October or November and I still didn't see any movement on the SOI Mythics. Um, I can say that before that period in the BFZ foil, Mythic foils, um, I'm already up you know, 20 to 30% uh, less than a year on in. So... Uh, this is something I feel relatively comfortable dropping, you know, a few hundred tickets into and seeing how it plays out in the new pre-release model. Wow. All right. Good amount of information there for our listeners. Uh, I especially like the fact that when you spec on Moto, you can play with the cards without worrying about the condition degrading. Yeah, that's a nice one. And it's, it's convenient that um, when you're buying the foil mythics, um, you know, you're picking them up in twos and fours, usually for the sake of convenience. Um, and that gives you kind of like the perfect playset amount for a lot of these cards. Um, one thing to point, I guess another point to make is that if everybody does this, um, <laughs> you're going to see price movements that are pretty swingy. Um, this is not the kind of thing where you can plow thousands of dollars into it overnight. Um, because basically the way the algorithms are set up for the few bots that actually buy and sell high-end foils um, you know, given the fact that foils are generally a bad thing to invest in or, and collect on Magic Online because most of them don't hold value um, beyond the redemption period. Uh, the, the way that you can kind of work the system is to uh, get in relatively early, 
um, and get out before redemption takes place um, when the, the demand for the foils far exceeds the supply. So tell me about your first pick this week. Sure. Uh, mine's not nearly as expansive as James's is. Um, I am looking at the, excuse me, the lands from Battle for Zendikar. Uh, I'm, a, I'm like a six-ish on these. I was higher on them at first, um, a little less than, and now I'll explain why. But uh, these are all floating in the dollar to three dollar range. Prairie Stream in particular is the one I'd be most interested in. It's got a price at around three dollars or so right now. I think you can score copies probably in the 250 range if you know where to look. Um, in general, the fall set cards spike their have their, the absolute highest price point of fall set cards are uh, pre pre release or the first week of release. The next highest point. In, a, in the card's lifespan tends to be uh, in October, the, the following October, immediately after the next uh, the next fall set release. So for the Battle for Zendikar cards, that is the October coming up that we are about four months, three and a half, four months away from. The gains tend to be clustered around competitive cards and lands always do well. Uh, in every single set going back through uh, uh, Scars of Mirrodin, some of the all of the lands have done okay, and several of them have done very well, depending on what flavor the month happens to be good in the metagame at that time. Just so happens that we have both Reflector Mage and Spell Queller in blue white, so Prairie Stream seems especially good right now because I can't imagine, given all the other great white cards out there right now, that this doesn't end up being a very strong color combination in standard in some capacity. There are lands that you can play four of. So overall, I definitely think that uh, there's a lot of room on these. They're not sexy. They're not exciting. They're probably not going to gain, you know, a thousand percent. But if you are just trade, they they're so cheap and they're so plentiful. You can be trading for these constantly at your local store. Every single binder you open, just pull all of their lands out. Um, and I would be very surprised if you don't at least double up on pretty much all of them. Um, it, their lands are going to be liquid. They're going to be easy to get rid of. Uh, if you're placing an order online and you're already paying for the shipping, look and check out what their land prices are. Maybe throw a couple in your bucket. Um, it's just they're pretty low, low risk and uh, very likely to all increase at least probably at least double on most of them. And ones like Prairie Stream, which are in a great position in the metagame, could do a bit more than that. Yeah, I mean, I feel... Is a that it's a little risky this time around. Um, not only was BFC opened a ton because everybody was chasing Expeditions, which has held the price of a lot of the relevant rares um, down for most of the year, um, but there's also, you know, we haven't gotten very many good lands this year. Um, the last few sets have been, you know, pretty land poor, um, and I suspect that in Kaladesh we are going to get a blockbuster set of duels. Um, maybe it's a new template, maybe they're bringing something back, um, and it's unclear what decks will be good, so a basket um, of the duels from last fall has a good chance of being successful for you know two or three uh, of the the included lands, and the other couple you know may shave off some of that profit. Um, I'm a little sketched out by all that, and I think I'll be steering clear on this one. Um, but you know certainly we have seen this pattern again and again, where um, given a year. Um, you know, rare land duels from uh, the fall set have tended to rise. Um, one of the, the other concerns I have here, though, is that we're now on the 18-month schedule, not the 24-month schedule. And so, you know, I'm already seeing patterns emerge where people seem reluctant, you know, 12 months in to get in on things. And for those lands in particular, um, for, you know, you'd really want to be selling them in early to mid-October, because by November or December, I expect that all the BFC cards are going to start to hit lows again, um, other than whatever you know the hottest cards are in the format, um, as people get ready for yet another rotation a few months out. I am going to say 
that I, I totally respect the concern about expeditions, by the way, which is kind of what the rest of the article was about. I had kind of sent out to talk about the expeditions in the set. Um, you'd have to go read the article to kind of see where it was. It's a protraded article. But part of what came out of this was that in spite of what we learned, I still think uh, the lands are, are pretty reasonably positioned. I also think it's kind of funny that you say that you think that the lands have been bad the last couple sets because we just walked off Kanzakar. Cons of Tarkir, which had the fetch lands, the onslaught fetch lands, which were a huge reprint. Oh yeah, I'm I'm talking after cons. Um, you know, for the last year's worth of standard, we haven't. You know, uh, we both the core set and Origins had pain lands. We got what are widely considered to be pretty bad duels that are unlikely to get played very much in modern in BFZ. Um, you know, the ones we're talking about now, and then since then we haven't really gotten anything, um, which is a little unusual. Okay, well, let's move on, James. What's your next pick? Surprisingly, you have even more. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've only got one other, and this one's back to paper. Um, Gisela the Broken Blade is a card I've definitely got my eye on this weekend for the Pro Tour, and it's entirely possible that by the time you listen to this, um, you know the first round, first day of Standard is going to be behind us at the Pro Tour, and we will already know the answer as to whether uh, Gisela is going somewhere in the near future. But I'm actually looking at what's going to happen to this card um, in the midterm. So specifically, I'm thinking about what happens after Collected Company rotates out, um, and the format gets a major, major shakeup. I mean, Collected Company and Bant decks have defined the format. Collected Company has shown up in multiple deck styles and that tempo mid-rangey game plan centered around value creatures and the ability to kind of come back from an empty board state with collected company has really defined the last you know six to twelve months of standard um and there's no doubt in my mind that the you know the black white angel decks that are currently running gisella in in standard are you know is a solid deck but they often only run her as a two of i'm really curious to see what happens once company's gone we've got the kaladesh cards and find out if gisella becomes a four of in uh, a more powerful archetype given the playing field that it will be facing um this fall uh, the card has is sitting at around fourteen dollars right now. If you can get in on some copies, you know, locally trading or via Facebook or Twitter or something, at say twelve. Um, I think you've got a pretty decent chance at a double up sometime during her uh, rotation, uh, you know, pre-rotation period. She's going to have uh, a pretty uh, a pretty solid year to you know find a chance to spike on camera. There are a ton of standard uh, big standard tournaments this year. Um, with the decreased focus on legacy and on modern. Um, so I think Gisela has a, a pretty decent shot at getting out of the gate and turning into an Archangel Avacyn type breakout at some point. Giselle is an extremely powerful card. She set everyone off when she came out. It was like, wait, this this card's printed? This is like just the front half of this is totally fine. And then you mean there's a back half for this card too? So the power level is absolutely there. Uh, at $14, I'm not sure I'm quite there with you yet. I think when I'm, if it's just, if this is at $10, I like it a lot more. 14 still a little bit high for me. That's not to say that it won't be successful. Just a little outside of my comfort zone, but definitely a great card to keep your eye on for sure. Um, because this is the type of card that can kind of slip, slip out of the metagame and kind of under the radar as the price drops and then something changes and suddenly it explodes back out as a four of for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I think that you have two routes to choose between here. You can try to get in early on the on the thinking that it's going to break out at the Pro Tour and do well and make a top, make the top eight and be impressive on camera, um, hopefully as a four of, at which point it probably pops over $20 for sure. Or the other route is wait and hope it doesn't do well at this Pro Tour, um, that Collective Company is just too strong or there are other routes that needed to be explored to beat Company that didn't include Gisela, at which point I think she becomes an 8 to $10 card and then she gets really compelling. I mean, the, the long-term prognosis for this card is good as well because you have angel collectors that are, that are going to be hot for this card, especially in foil. Um, on the long term and because it's part of a split giant crazy monster that's going to be unique in magic's history along with bruna um, uh, that makes this card something you're going to want to chase this is the mythic half of uh, of that two card co you know flip combo and because of that um, you know wherever i see the local low on this card that's when my interest is going to be high and i'm going to start packing away some copies 
yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you there. When you notice that it's found the floor, it's certainly worth um, worth checking out. Uh, all right, I'm going to jump to my last card for the week. It is uh, it is Obnixilis Reignited, also from Battle for Zendikar. Um, also a mid m- mid duration card of about a seven on the confidence level. I'm a little better, bigger. Uh, I'm a little more confident in this. Currently about five dollars for Obnixilis. Uh, I like it. You know, shooting for 10, 10 to twelve. Um, my thinking is kind of similar to the Prairie Stream and the other Battle for Zendikar lands. I went looking for Battle for Zendikar cards this week um, because I think that that set is headed for what will be uh, essentially its highest price point in its standard lifespan. It's about three to four months away. Uh, so I, I wanted to check it out and see what was out there. I, uh, you know, there's there's the Expeditions thing hanging over its head. I don't think that that means the set is going to be worthless completely forever, though. Um, at the very least, these cards should be able to ride some of the spike through the fall uh, with the humongous caveat that we've never seen a two-block rotation before. We don't know when print runs are ending at this point. Um, there's a lot of unknown factors here going into this. So I'm working with the best information that I have, just like we always are. Uh, but I just want to highlight that there's especially a lot of, uh, unknown and uncertainty around, around battle for Zenikar and that block. And really the first like block or two is we try and figure out what these new rotations are going to do to card prices. In any case, Obnixilis, uh, has been doing very well in standard quietly as one to two of in lots of different decks. Uh, Liliana, the last hope uh, looks very powerful and is going to be pulling Obnixilis in because decks are going to be playing black with Liliana. And if you're there, Obnixilis is worth checking out. Um, we saw it beat the green blue crush deck last week. Uh, we know distended Mindbender is also in black, a very powerful card, uh, the type of card that might, you might want to play along Obnixilis. Um, and that's, you know, the, that's, that's a strong card. that's going to pull players into that color. So in general, I just like Obnixilis's positioning and $5 is so cheap for a playable standard planeswalker, um, that I think this could quietly just hit 10 bucks and nobody's really going to notice. And if you had picked up copies, you would have doubled up. I'm a little gun shy about planeswalkers having picked up like 10 copies of uh sarkin dragon sarkin dragon speaker um for over over 12 dollars mm-hmm. or something last year <laughs> I, and I, i've got a pile of dragon speakers too so i'm right there with you yeah and and though i've done well with gideon and with nisa um i'm still a little gun shy in the planeswalkers there's just so many being printed and they are so rarely they so rarely end up four ofs and especially when they cost five that you know, you pointed out that it's a, usually a one or a two of. Um, I, I feel like it has that one shot in the fall to get over 10. Um, the one thing I will say in support of this thesis is that um, because so few of the cards in battle um, are carrying value, um, you know, we only have two cards over $10. We've got Ulamog at twelve fifty or so and Gideon at 20 um, Everything else is under six and Obnixilis is in third place that in sets where very few cards are carrying the majority of the value, you do have the chance for, you know, modest demand for, uh, the third, fourth or fifth ranked card to push it up over 10, especially if it's a mythic. Um, so it has an outsider shot. Uh, I just think I'm too gun shy. Um, to me, it's, it's similar to cards like drawn a liberator Malakir. And I think that because, uh, uh, Obnixilis is, uh, you know, prospects are, totally limited to standard. Um, I'm much more interested in, say, part the Water Veil uh, as a $4 mythic in BFC that is likely to hit $10, you know, two or three years down the road. Well, I part the Water Veil specifically, I don't disagree with. In fact, I've spoken at length before about how much I like time walk effects, but um, I don't see... Part the Water Veil seems like it's going to be so hard to do much in standard, whereas, you know, a card like Obnixilis is just so much more solid. Like, you know people are going to cast that card and they're going to play him. So if Battle for Zendikar gains any value in October, he should be one of the cards that picks it up. Um, Ulamog, too. I think they're great. I just, you know, the set is so low value right now. I, I completely agree. And But it's not the first time in Magic's history that a card, a set in general has been this low value. And, it, you know, the, the last one that was also also as a set spiked pretty well. Um, so I, 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 I don't know. I don't know what these expeditions are, are definitely going to do. Uh, but I do think that all of these are are viable, are viable. So, uh, moving on, on our sell wash this week, I have a single card. Um, 
Another card that I think is an overvalued Eldritch Moon card that you're going to want to be getting out of um, relatively soon if you're holding bonus copies. And the card in question is Spell Queller. Um, th there's no doubt that this card alongside uh, the rest of the Bant Company shell is just a busted, busted magic card, especially in Standard. Um, it has a potential future in Modern. Um, the, the card is very important. However, uh, Collective Company is going to rotate. <laughs> And, and then we don't know what we're dealing with. Uh, it's going to be such a huge shakeup to the format that almost anything could happen. We don't know what the Kaladesh cards are going to look like. Um, I suspect the focus is going to be largely on artifacts. That's going to bring different dynamics into play. Different decks are going to rise to the forefront. We're going to have different duels. Um, lots can change. And for a, a in-print rare, a recently you know, a, a released within the month rare, to be holding over $15 is the kind of thing that generally only collected company can do. And I don't think that Spell Queller as a two-color card is going to be as ubiquitous over the course of its entire standard lifestyle, life cycle as Collected Company was. And because of that, I would be happy to be getting out at 15 because I think that at some point, you know, you know, sooner or later, probably, probably mid to six to 10 months out, this card is going to get back down under $10 and you're going to be happy to be out of it. Yeah, you know, I've been uh, advocating holding Spell Queller until the Pro Tour, but I agree that after the Pro Tour, you pretty much just have to sell this because the ceiling on it, it will be so close to the ceiling at that point, even if it's not there, that it's not worth the risk. And while I would be surprised if Spell Queller doesn't continue to be a major part of Standard in some capacity, uh, I, I agree that we are kind of getting to the point where it's silly not to just, not to just take whatever money you've got and be happy with it and not worry about it. My prediction for this Pro Tour is that Bant Company decks are still three to five of the top eight. And yeah. three to uh, five. They, yeah, it's it's just too good. Um and and I think that there are there are gonna be some cool decks that show up, they're gonna that are gonna get deck techs that are attacking Bant Company from good angles, and some of those players are gonna get deep into day two, and a couple, few of them are gonna make top eight, and maybe one of them even wins. But you don't need to get rid of Spell Queller ahead of the Pro Tour. You need to ride the hype because I, I believe that if my prediction comes true and we get, you know, you know, a third to a half of the decks running it, then it could hit as high as $20 um, or at least you'll be able to trade it out at $20 to somebody who's desperate for them for their standard deck. And, you know, if you can trade out of these into some fetch lands or something, then, you know, go for it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right. Uh, segment three, metagame week in review. Uh, we're going to talk about Star City Baltimore, which was this past weekend. Um, just kind of gives us a little bit of uh, a little bit of flavor to understand the Pro Tour Aldrich Moon with, and also we can look at Modern really quick and see where that's starting to move as well. So I, I want to point out on the standard side, what I thought was interesting is there were uh, one, two, three, four different band collective company decks in the top eight. In fact, the day two was even heavier. Uh, Bant collected company than it was the week prior, which is pretty ridiculous, um, and it was half the top eight. But among those four Bant collected company decks, I believe I counted uh, 15 copies of Selfless Spirit. They were one copy short of playing all 16, which is, I was I was struck by that. I did not think that Selfless Spirit was going to be that big of a card, that important to the to the strategy. But there you go. This card is is everywhere. That just really jumped out at me. I mean, Bant Company reward, you know, because it only um, works with creatures that cost three or less, um, it really rewards you for getting maximum value off three casting cost cards. And because they have access to four copies of Reflector Mage and four copies of Spell Queller, um, it's the two drop where they really need assistance, especially since they also run um, Eldrazi Displacer and Deathwatch Recruiter is pretty mana intensive. Tireless Tracker is a three drop. So they're really, the, you know, their best two drop is Sylvan Advocate. Um, but Selfless Spirit, its interaction um, versus burn spells is productive um, and gives them tricky little things they can do uh, within combat to keep their creatures on the board. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, over on the green-blue crush deck, uh, we saw four of the four crusher tentacles, four lumbering falls, uh, as I talked about earlier, um, four den protector, but who cares? We all know about that card. Uh, I was playing an Emrakul. Uh, three Traverse to Ulenwald. Uh, Traverse to Uven, Uvenwald, Uvenwald. Uh I haven't seen too much of that in Standard yet, but that's still a really interesting card that we've seen pop up in Modern, even Legacy, a little bit. Um, so that's that's worth keeping your eye on, too, I think. 
Yeah, Traverse Eleven World Foils were one of my calls like ten weeks ago, and I'm still on that train. Um, I think that that card is a modern thing down the road, um, and is going to be important. Uh, the green blue crush deck kind of came out of nowhere. Very few players were playing it. Corey Dissinger made fifth with it. Um, you know, it was uh, you know widely panned for having all these weird one ofs. It's got a hanger backwalker, a bounding crassus, and one elvish visionary, a void grafter that blew his opponent out on camera. Uh, and Emmercool, the promised end, and Ishkana, Graf Widow. Um, Patrick Chapin was saying that he should have he should have ran more Graf Widow. Um, everybody had an opinion on the numbers in this deck. It was also running two Kiora Master of the Depths, which is a Planeswalker we haven't seen much of lately. Um, but you know, at the center of all this is are, is the four Mythic Rare Crush of Tentacles. Um, hence the movement on that card this week. Um, it, this deck looks like uh, it is a little loose, and uh, I'm curious to see whether anybody else has come to the conclusion that the you know Crush of Tentacles uh, Den Protector combo is where you want to be against Bat and Company. <laughs> I mean, oh, all day long, I would love to be doing that to people. <laughs> yeah. P- pick up all your stuff, including my Den Protector, put the Den Protector back down, bring back the Crush and do it to you again. Oh, who doesn't want it? If I was playing standard, I would be all over that because it would be so amusing. <laughs> uh, over over on the modern side of things, again, I just want to point out Dredge 1. Uh, they had the, the four Bloodgast, four Golgari Grave Troll, four Greater Gargadon, and four Prize Amalgam. Prize Amalgam, I think, has kind of climbed out of the bulk rare status into a dollar or two Greater Gargadon we've talked about in past weeks. Bloodgast and Golgari Grave Troll are both kind of primed and ready for a price explosion. I think Grave Troll especially because gas is already like $15 or $20. Grave Troll is still in the couple dollar range. Um, if we see this, the Dredge deck come out and do really well in another event uh, or two, um, I know Star City Syracuse is, is in two weeks and that's modern. I'll be there. Uh, Grave Troll could really do a lot, of, could really see a lot of a large price explosion. So maybe, maybe watch that card. Um, also, Kiki Cord uh, was oh, playing oh, for. Oh, oh, hold on. Go ahead, go ahead. I, I, we we have to talk about a couple points on this Dredge deck. First, first off, point out that you know Dredge continues to put up results, continues to make top eights, and yet still most of the key cards, like you said, Grave Troll, Gargadon, etc., are not seeing the kind of price movement you would expect for a deck that is this consistent in modern. Um, interesting that there's four Leyline of the Void in this deck uh, that may have had something to do with the movement on that this week. Um, also worth pointing out that, uh, as you said, prized amalgam and insolent neonate are now, you know, officially modern cards. And so foils, um, available at relatively low prices are something you might want to look at. Um, you know, Nar- Narcomoeba was a nothing foil at one point and, uh, stay, didn't stay that way until it was reprinted. Travis, what do you think the over under was on Shriekhorn, the artifact out of Born of the Gods, um, making the top eight of a modern tournament? Oh, uh, I don't know how many decimal places am I allowed? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's that's interesting. You know, what's funny about this too is that uh, you know I remember when this card came out and people, no, no, you know what? I got nothing. This is not. I don't know. Shriekhorn. Who knew? Right? Like, yeah. So, okay. so for those who, so for those who don't know, it's an artifact for one casting cost. Enters the battlefield with three charge counters, and you can tap it and remove a charge counter to make pl- target player put two t- cards from the top of their library into their graveyard. So it's a really weak-looking mill card. And yet, somehow, that ability at the one casting cost slot is so valuable to the dredge deck that they're willing to play you know, play this card that nobody else is even looking at. I don't know what the foils are at for this card. I have no idea if this is going to be um, a trend with the j- dredge decks or just a weird innovation on O'Keefe's part. Um, but hats off for getting that card into a top eight and winning the tournament with it. Well, you know, I guess, I mean, there's no really quicker and easier way to put two cards into your graveyard on turn one with, with zero color requirement. I mean, that's really powerful. And then the fact that you get to, you get two cards immediately on turn one, and then you get a total of six cards value out of Shrikorn for one mana. And I mean, it's, it's good at what it does, I guess. It's just extremely niche. So you were you were saying that we also saw Affinity, Kiki Cord, Burn, another Affinity deck, uh, Zoo, and another Burn deck. So a fairly you know aggro um, looking top eight. In eighth place, we had uh, the Bant Retreat deck that I've had my eye on for a long time. This is the Knight of the Reliquary Retreat to Coral Helm combo. Um, Foil Retreat to Coral Helm has been on my list for several months now as a card that could break out down the road. Um, this also runs for Collected Company um, and sets up Company to have 
uh, additional methods of of you know annoying opponents moving forward in modern. Um, also worth noting in this deck, two copies of Thalia Heretic Hathar, the card out of Eldritch Moon, um, making an appearance in the top eight of a modern tournament shortly after release. Um, certainly bodes well for the foils of that card down the road. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's true for sure. Uh, I noticed the four main deck Eldritch Evolution in the Kiki Core deck that popped up. Um, that's not too surprising. Kiki Cord was one of the decks that was identified as uh, most able to make use of Eldrazi or Eldritch Evolution out of the gates. Um, but but proving that it has modern chops to show up. Uh, and I don't think we've seen the last of Eldritch Evolution at all. People kind of mostly universally agreed it was probably the strongest card in Eldritch Moon, all things considered. I'm looking at prices right now in the $5, the $6 range. Um, so, you know, maybe it breaks out at the pro tour, maybe not, but if this sneaks through the pro tour and hasn't seen any action, I'd be real interested in this card in like the dollar to $2 range. Uh, you know, maybe it pulls an evolutionary leap and just looks really good and doesn't move. But I think Eldritch evolution is a very different card than, uh, evolutionary leap. Well, yeah, I agree with that. And I'm, it's also worth noting that the third place performer that was playing this Kiki chord is kind of the Kiki chord, uh, granddaddy, Jeff Hoogland. Um, you know, a very res- uh, respected player of this archetype. And for him to be running four, the full four copies says that he sees it as a sea change. Um, you know, he was he was running uh, different things in those slots, and he gave up a full four slots to fit this in. So obviously his testing bore out that the card was worth it. And for him to finish third, um, you know, puts proof to that pudding. Yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, do you want to jump over to the segment of the week, or you got anything else from Baltimore for us? I think that's it for now. Uh, So moving on to our segment of the week, uh, we're just going to push through a grab bag of, you know, magic finance-related news. Um, First on the docket is the uh, announcement of the inclusion, uh, or the, I guess, the full list of FTV lore. This is the uh, uh, LGS-only release of the much maligned uh, FTV foils um, that come out on an annual basis um, where everybody is always hoping they're going to print 15 amazing cards and they never do. Um, you want to break? give me your overview on this one? You there? Yep. I, I finished with, do you want to give me your overview on this one? On lore, yep. Uh, FTV lore is uh, well. If you weren't disappointed with FTV twenty, don't worry, Wizards, it's come around again. Uh, the overwhelming reaction I saw on Twitter is it's time to put the FTV series to bed. It comes with GTA Dark Depths and thirteen other cards nobody cares about. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's cards like Telaria West, which are playable in um, in a couple formats. You've got. Unmask, which gets played, Momor Vig's a, uh, a decent EDH commander, but it just doesn't seem like there's any excitement or interest left in this series anymore. It's not cool. I just, I, I don't know. The, the emotional level seems very drained from this. Um, it's just not capturing people's attention anymore the way it used to. Combined with with the fact that it is using garbage tier foiling, uh, the FTV foiling process that nobody anywhere likes that they continue to use for some unknown reason uh it basically makes all of these copies of the cards second class citizens um you know because they're like yeah i'll play the ftv copy because i don't have the original one and i'm looking through this right now and i don't think there's a single one of these that wasn't already in foil um you know in fact there's cards like gliss of the trader which have like two or three foils as it is already uh so you know it's kind of convenient to be able to pick up some cheaper dark depths that'll pull the price down on that a little bit uh, a little bit on gta but overall it just seems like uh well like a turd and i'm i'm really not interested in picking up um, uh copies of this uh sealed sets unless they're basically for what msrp which is i don't know is it still 35 dollars yeah, I don't think, I mean, yes, MSRP is 35. I don't think it would need to be that low to catch my interest. I mean, foil jit, um, the fact that they included the Merit Lage token and Dark Depths itself probably keeps this over 100. Um, all right, so not, 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 all right, not MSRP. Like, I, I don't want to buy this for any more than the sum total of the cards inside of it. How about yeah, that? Oh, Which yeah, is yeah. just like Dark Depths and GTA. Yes, and, and I also agree. I, I don't know. I mean, on the plus side, 
Um, we're probably not getting another foil jit or um, dark depths anytime soon. So they will get some time to appreciate, which will eventually pull the setup. But my experience with like for thing, for instance, things like FTV lands, um, you know, uh, or realms, I guess it was called, but it was basically lands. Um, it took you know three or four years for that to show a solid gain, and there are usually better places to park your money. Um, I mean, there was some interest in the 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 Cabal ritual art is nice. Um, it probably looks great in foil. Uh, if it wasn't FTV foiling. Um, the Momor Vig will certainly um, uh, hold people's interest from EDH. Um, but one of the, the bigger complaints about this was just like the number of lore points that are actually memorable or that would be important to the magic community was extremely low um, and just represents a failed theme. Um, they are constantly compromising um, their commitment to theme with, for a variety of different reasons. With FTV 20, um, you know, they, they didn't want to reprint um, all the cards that actually mattered from all the given years, so they printed all sorts of weird stuff that really undermined the presence of Jace the Mind Sculptor in that set. Um, and, and many of us ended up with too many of them in the closet as a result. And as you said, it's just time to put this out to pasture, or at the very least, fix the foiling. I mean, from a business perspective, I can understand where they're coming from. They would have fixed foiling a long time ago if it was easy to do. I suspect that it's too expensive for these short short print runs to make use of the factory process that achieves normal foiling. And so, you know, this is the compromise that they came up with when they were planning these products. And it may just be that there is no easy alternative other than to make them mass market. But, you know, if FTV lore was just $49.99, came with... 10 more desirable cards and used regular foiling and it was available at Walmart's. I think everybody could live with that. Yeah. I can't, I keep staring at this damn Phyrexian processor in lore. It's not, it's not part of the, like, it's just the, the, the explanation of Phyrexian processor was, Oh, the Phyrexians turned people into junk and bigger monsters. Like it's just, it's not <laughs> like Phyrexian processor always just felt like a throwaway. Like they're like, Oh, we want to make this card. Uh, I guess we can turn it into a, Phyrexian aligned card it just it just seems so lazy from a lore perspective too yeah. like yeah conflux i get conflux i get right and like dark depths is cool gta is cool even telaria west is uh like or, or an obliterate are cool cards that don't need to be expensive but like Phyrexian processor there's there is no lore to that it's just machines they don't even come up ah bothers me <laughs> yeah the, the, Ugh, the, all right the, the, the vorthos posse was not pleased um and i can't i can't blame them so moving on to our, our second portion, um, let's talk about the announcement of the organized play schedule for 2016-2017, or I guess it starts really in January 2017. Um, we got the GP schedule this week. Um, what jumped out on you on this schedule? Yeah, th there's, a, there's an interesting little nugget in here. So everyone knows about the large, uh, uh, well, I guess it's not really large, but what we took away as being the large announcement of this is the Las Vegas weekend with three GPs. Um, so Las Vegas, GP Las Vegas, which happens June 15th through 18th. Uh, that is going to be, wait, I think it's Wednesday, right? I mean, wait, I'm almost there. June 15th, Thursday. So it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, um, officially. That's Grand Prix Vegas. And it's a two-day Legacy Grand Prix into a two-day Standard Grand Prix into a two-day Constructed Modern GP. So three GPs in a row. Everyone thinks it's it's pretty cool, especially with uh, sealed modern masters having been you know mediocre at best um you know and with a with a field that large the decks that are going nine ho on day one are just unreal um so if you don't open a ridiculous pool it's really tough to to, to excel but even beyond that there's no limited grand prix here um it's a legacy standard modern so People are wondering what this means for Modern Masters. Is the set different? Um, are they not going to build it for limited? What have you? Blah, blah, blah. But if you look back about a month prior, in early May, there is a triple limited GP weekend with an event in USA, in Europe, and in Asia. Uh, Richmond, Bologna, and Beijing. So what this says to me is that Modern Masters uh, 2017 uh, will still exist. It will still get its limited Grand Prix weekend. But instead of doing one gigantic event with one Grand Prix where you go 0-2 and then you're out of the main event immediately, it's one Grand Prix in each of the major regions so that it's easier for everybody to participate in the big Modern Masters weekend. And then Vegas is essentially the the like after party. Um, it's 
gives everybody something to do because there's all three constructed formats. So no matter what 60 cards you want to sleeve up, you can go play. I'm sure there will be a massive amount of side events in terms of standard um, sealed events going on in, in draft uh, to, to for people who want to scratch that itch. So it just seems like they're doing the major release uh, about a month earlier and then setting Las Vegas up to kind of be the, okay, you got the cards, now come play uh, event. So I think that that was, um, I think that that's what we're going to see here. Kind of hard, kind of hard to say, but what do you think? No, I, I fully agree with this analysis. And it's what I said on Twitter to people this week as well, was that this weekend in May, May 5th to 7th, has to be the release of Modern Masters 2017. Um, there's a couple of things, strategic things going on here. First of all, the Asia JP, GP, like you said, is in China, not in Japan, which makes sense because um, with Modern Masters 2015, it was printed in Japanese and English. Um, so the GP was in uh, Japan. Um, but with, uh, El- with Eternal Masters, it was printed in three languages, one of which was uh, uh, Mandarin. So the... Um, that it makes sense then that the, with the next release, if they're going to follow that pattern with the tri language English, Japanese, and, and one of the Chinese languages, then uh, you know China gets their chance at the release GP. Um, so, and the other thing that's going on here is that Star City Games is running the tournament in Richmond, um, whereas Vegas would be Channel Fireball ter- territory. And it was basically you know Ch- Channel Fireball and Star City Games are the two biggest vendors in North America. Um, Wizards has to keep a good relationship with both. It makes sense that if um, that Channel Fireball can't get the Vegas the the Vegas slash um, Modern Masters releases all the time because Star City's not going to be happy with that. So they gave Star City the East Coast version of the Modern Masters release for this year, but to keep Channel Fireball happy, they still get to run a big thing, big deal event in Vegas, and everybody gets their tournament. The date really seems to line up too, because I'm seeing that this limited weekend is May 5th through 7th and Modern Masters 2015 released on May 22nd. So only about two weeks after the, uh, this, this year's triple limited GP weekend is only about two weeks prior to, uh, the last Modern Masters release. So it's not even like they have to push the timeframe up two months or anything. It's, it's really similar. Yeah, and so I suspect that what that means is that the second set at Kaladesh block is uh, late January, early February, um, like a little earlier in the season again, to make room for you know enough product sales before Modern Masters 2017 becomes a focus. Um, uh, and given that this seems to confirm the presence of the set, uh, I'm unloading Snapcasters and Liliana's this fall for sure. Um, I don't expect that those cards are going to get a chance to climb much higher than they already are. Um, getting out on Snapcasters over 80 was definitely the place to, to be selling them. I'm glad that I got out of most of uh, my copies at that point, but I'm still holding some Liliana's um, that I picked up at 50 in you know January of 2015 um, that I'll be happy to unload anywhere in the 90 to $100 range um, in the next couple of months since I there's, there's no way those cards aren't included in this next version of Modern Masters. Yeah, anything that's worth any amount of money from the new sets, the sets that are being added to the Modern Masters rotation. So Samcaster Liliana, I'm selling the few Crater Hoof Behemoths I had floating around. I just sold one today. I'm going to try and get rid of the other one because those have got a huge target on their head. So anything from that era with a good price tag is worth um, is worth getting out of, especially because, uh, you know, the way this window is shifting uh, we're, we're only adding two years worth of cards, but how many cards are they really going to add from those two years, right? Like they can't make all of Modern Masters those brand new cards. They, they still have to pull from the old stuff. So it just feels like they're going to be kind of like reaching deeper and deeper into these sets to find cards worth reprinting. So where like they might have missed stuff from um, a, a Mirrodin block or Kamigawa block or whatever the first time uh, because there were so many sets they had to try and cover with the first Modern Masters, they're able to get deeper and deeper with each successful uh, successive Modern Masters because um, they already hit some of the big targets so they can start going for the little guys. So um, I'm definitely just just selling everything and uh, and not looking to hold very much modern many very many modern cards at all unless they are purely speculative and even that's a stretch. It's also worth noting that because it's going to, it looks like it's going to be printed in in uh, Mandarin, uh, uh, because it's getting a Chinese printing, the the likelihood of cheap Chinese modern cards 
flooding the internet after that GP is high and it's going to help um, suppress the prices of the relevant rares and mythics um, for a long time after. The, the triple G with, GP with 2015 really held down prices for that set for a while um, and has kept things in check. And, uh, you know, that additional supply you get from 10 or 15,000 people cracking packs for an entire weekend is not to be overlooked. I just don't want to be anywhere near the cards that are likely to be targeted for that set. Yeah, yeah, I am right there with you, buddy. All right, it's late. I want to go to bed. Let's wrap this up. Uh, where, can, where can people find you online, Travis? Uh, I am available on Twitter at wizardbumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N, and I write every Wednesday at mtgprice.com. You guys can find me on Twitter at mtgcritic, as well as via my occasional articles on mtgprice.com. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, and we do have that working now. Fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, James, it was another great episode. Glad to chat with you again. Uh, I will see you next week. Thanks, Travis, and we'll see you guys all next week on MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.